Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. It is Friday, and apparently you no longer have to wear your mask. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, as expected, Elise Stefanik was elected to be the new chair of the House Republican Conference. It was a vote of 136 to 45 for Chip Roy, a couple of other votes scattered around. Um, but Liz Cheney is out. Lee Stefanik is in. Um, other interesting bit of news this morning is that there is a bipartisan agreement now uh, for a, a uh, I was going to say a 9-11 commission, a 9-11 style commission looking into what happened to the Capitol on January 6th. Uh, so that that's going to be interesting going forward, whether or not that will get off the ground and will make a difference. To discuss all of this, we are joined by our colleague, Bill Crystal. Happy Friday, Bill. And to you, Charlie. Good to be with you. Yeah, it seems like one of those long weeks, but I think we've said this before. Hey, before we get started, um, I, I want to play a, a clip. Liz Cheney, who I don't know her personally. I know you know her better. Um, I am just amazed by the, how tough this woman is. She goes on Fox News last night with Brett Baer. And you kind of wonder what she's going to do, what she's going to have to say. And she gets into it. I'm going to play just one cut. There's a lot of things they talked about where she's going back at Brett Baer about uh, the election lies and about Fox's responsibility. And Brett Baer is trying to push back. But uh, let's just let's just play this clip. This is uh, Liz Cheney last night on Fox News with Brett Baer. But I continue to say it, though, Brett. And, and, and but Brett, I continue to say it because it's principle. But it's it's because it's the people of Wyoming Brett, who are right. electing a congressperson to fight for them and to fight against the Biden agenda. Why wouldn't they say, "Is this the person that's going to get it done?" Uh, uh, because, that's what well, your colleagues are asking. I'm going to I'm going to answer the question. Uh, we all have an obligation, and I would say Fox News, especially, especially Fox News has a particular obligation to make sure people know the election wasn't stolen. Fox News, Fox times. News, Brett, I'm going to answer your question. Fox News needs to make no, sure that the American people, Fox News, you have they to need know to that make sure that the American times. people, Brett, you're doing the interview, I'm answering the questions. We need to make sure that the American people recognize and understand that the election wasn't stolen, that we shouldn't perpetuate the big lie, and that there's real danger. You know, I've worked in countries around the world where we don't yeah, so um Bill, your your take on that. This lady's just not taking any crap, is she? No, and I think coming on and then turning a, a ridiculous slide of inquiry from Brett Bear, what are the people of Wyoming? They expect you to be fighting Biden. Really? Don't they elect members of Congress to represent their interests, but also the state and the country's interest, and which means fighting Biden, but also uh, dealing with lies in their own party and dealing with uh, assaults on the Capitol. So the whole uh, Brett Bear is smarter than that. A, I'll, I'll say, I know Brett Bear, I know Liz Cheney, and I obviously was at Fox News once upon a time and worked with Liz a little bit actually in the early Obama years. So I'm going to say a couple of things that I don't know, but I believe. One, Brett Bear does not do that himself. Brett Bear's audience in that was his bosses at Fox. That's that, that's not Brett Bear to have such a silly line of questioning and get so defensive about Fox. Uh, but he felt like obviously, you know, the Murdochs were watching, and uh, maybe his senior colleagues, Rich Hume, Brett's always been pretty deferential to him, was watching, and he didn't want to get criticized afterwards for not standing up for his team, which is, a very, and Brett's a much more decent person than, than the evening host at Fox and has been more responsible, not fully responsible, but more of a responsible figure, which is a nice little uh, 
illustration of what happens, though, when you go along, right? I mean, Brett Baer is better than Tucker Carlson. At the end of the day, Brett Baer sort of has to defend Tucker Carlson because he's part of that organization. Second and finally, final point, I guess, is Liz Cheney. Liz Cheney knows Brett Baer well. Uh, you know, they've both been around Washington for 20 years. And, you know, if you're a leading conservative politician and he's the leading anchor on Fox, you've been out to many informal dinners and drinks and, you know, and, and she's done his show many, many times, been interviewed by him many, many times. I think she went on, I don't know this, but I think she went on expecting kind of a fair chance to say her piece. I think she was a little startled. You can sort of see that in the interview that Brett went on this thing, but it's very much of a tribute to her. I agree just in terms of quick thinking and steeliness that she didn't kind of get all defensive and, oh, I did that. I did this for the people of Wyoming. I brought home, uh, you know, a bridge in Cheyenne or something. Instead, she focused, she sort of reversed it and, and put Brett on the spot and put Fox on the spot. And putting Fox on the spot, that's courageous for a Republican politician. She's still a Republican politician. She still is a Republican member from Wyoming. She still faces a primary. Uh, and and so I, I think it was a very interesting and impressive, uh, interesting moment and impressive performance by Liz Cheney. Uh, I, I agree with you. I, and then there's a delicious detail that a, a dazzling, delicious detail that I want to bring up in just a moment. But I want to go back to your first point, because uh, that the question, the the, the assumption of the, of the first question that we play, Brett Barry asked here, well, the people of Wyoming elected you to oppose the Biden administration. <laughs> Don't they think you're going to do that? And it's interesting how often you hear that particular assumption in a lot of the questions and commentary that the role of a Republican congressperson is strictly partisan, is to oppose Joe Biden as opposed to you were elected by the people of Wyoming, as you just said, to uphold the Constitution. They take an oath. They don't take an oath to Donald Trump or to the Republican Party or to oppose Joe Biden. They take an oath to defend the Constitution, to uphold the Constitution. And what's interesting is that that norm has been so eroded um, by the, you know, the demand that people put the tribal partisan agenda ahead of any sort of, you know, putting country ahead of party that even a guy like Brett Baer asks it as if it's sort of just assumed that you were sent to Wyoming to do everything possible to undermine Joe Biden, as opposed to, I don't know, tell the truth about the election, uh, to not whitewash the insurrection, to stand up for all of that. So I, I, I agree with that. And I thought she was very tough. But here's the delicious, dazzling detail, okay, <laughs> which we don't have on the tape here. So Liz Cheney goes on and says, Fox News needs to tell people the election was not rigged. And, and then Brett Baer says, we, we don't do that. We do not do that. And 30 minutes later, Brett Baer <laughs> brings on Molly Hemingway to comment on Liz Cheney. Molly Hemingway, who has a book out titled literally rigged how the how the media big tech and the democrats seized our elections so it's like he's like we don't do that here we don't have people who are questioning the election and then she has then he has molly hemingway on to do her molly hemingway thing about how the election was rigged it it is sort of the this ongoing gaslighting and you kind of wonder whether or not there are the goldfish mines out there just sort of forget what you said 30 minutes ago when you do that sort of thing. But I, I, just, I, I, I thought it was a rather extraordinary moment. That is extraordinary. That is a telling. And, uh, but I, I want to come back again to you in a way to your first point, uh, 
which is so important. I mean, you and I are old enough to remember that routinely, if you were elected to uh, Congress or the Senate, the House or the Senate or governorship or whatever, you began your acceptance speech. You thanked your family and your supporters and your team, and then you said, "Look, I'm I'm honored to have won this. I'm going to represent all the people." Right. Of this state or this district. I'm going to govern in their behalf. I'm going to use my judgment. You know, uh, I mean, that was just kind of standard pablum, I guess you'd say, but it was kind of important for the country, right? And, you know, people really did sometimes go against their party. And so the, I very much agree. Brett Baer is not, fool, not stupid and not foolish and not the most, obviously, partisan or egregious character at Fox News, but he just takes it for granted. That if you're a Republican, an elected Republican, right. i.e. an elected member of Congress, not not the RNC chair. In the old days, even the RNC chair would occasionally you know, let the partisanship subside, but leave that aside. Uh, but you're the elected member of Congress, and of course your job is just to oppose Biden. And McConnell said a version of that about two weeks ago. I think we commented on it on a podcast, uh, you and I, that you know he just took it for granted that my job here is to stop the Biden administration. And then he sort of had to walk it back a tiny bit the next day and say, well, I, when they're doing something wrong. But his instinct is very much pure opposition. Right. And it's not as bad as gaslighting uh, and and spreading lies. You can just be a ferocious mm-hmm. partisan and still be, you know, not not part of a uh, not exactly anti-democratic, but it's not healthy either. It's not healthy. And it incidentally it tells a lot says a lot about how Brett Baer and how everyone what they what the people at Fox think about Fox's role, which is basically they are the opposition. And even if there's something Biden does that deserves support or deserves qualified support, uh, they're not going to give it. Um, now, at the at the risk of repeating something that I said um, on our live stream last night, but I know that, you know we have we have we have different audiences, um, and of course, people who subscribe to Bulwark Plus have read of all our newsletters, right? They've read them through uh, cover to cover. Yeah. J- Jonathan and committed, Lass, them to, and committed them to memory. Exactly, took notes. Um, and there will not be a quiz, but, but Jonathan last had a, a segment in, on his newsletter yet in his newsletter yesterday that, that I, I keep thinking about, which was the fact that, uh, you know, we've heard this over and over and over again, over the last four or five years, you know, Republicans saying about Trump, I don't read his tweets or, you know, he says stuff I don't agree with, you know, you might not, not like his style, but the only thing that matters is policy is conservative policy. I, Bill, I think you've heard that. You've heard that excuse, right? Oh, don't pay any attention to that sort of stuff. All that matters is policy. And what JVL wrote was, this was always self-evidently false. From the beginning, it was clear that what drew people to Trump was not the policies, but his tweets. The crazy was not the cost of doing business. The crazy was the entire industry. Anyway, this week, the House Republicans faced a choice. In party leadership, they could have gone with, one, a woman with a rock-solid conservative voting record whose tweets they find problematic, or a woman who is a rhino squish on policy, but says all the right stuff on Twitter, would have been the easiest thing in the world for House Republicans to have said, look, we don't read Liz Cheney's Twitter feed. Does she say stuff I don't agree with? Sure. But the only thing that matters is conservative policy, right? Instead, we got, sure, Liz Cheney's good on policy, but we can't stand her tweets. So she's gone. It says game set match. Do not ever let Republicans tell you that a politician's public posture is less important than their conservative policy goals. And you saw that again. Chip Roy, who I'm not a fan of Chip Roy, but, you know, clearly has a much stronger, deeper, more consistent conservative policy record than Elise Stefanik. And he got blown away 
in the in the caucus vote. So forget the scorecards, forget the policy. It's it's about one thing, and it's about one thing only, Benin. So tell me about Lily Stefanik. I, um, it, you know her. You've met with her. In fact, you you met with her relatively recently in in terms of political geo geopolitic geopolitical time. <laughs> so tell me about her. I mean, so I got to know her. She was in the Bush White House right out of college and a sort of assistant to, I think, Joel Kaplan, who was deputy chief of staff. And I met her very, very slight, slightly once or twice there. But then she came to work for the Foreign Policy Initiative in 2009, which we set up as a kind of uh, bipartisan, no mostly Republican-ish, Bush-McCain-like foreign policy organization. And uh, Bob Kagan and Eric Edelman and I were on the board, so that would give you a sense of the, the flavor of it. She was very much for a strong U.S. leadership in the world, which includes a defense of a strong military and defense, but also the kind of classic uh, soft power leadership that America had had uh, shown through the decades and including on issues like trade and so forth. Um, she worked for a year or two. She went over to the RNC. She worked for, uh, she helped her write the platform in 2012 and I think was an, att- an attempt to have a forward-looking platform, worked for Paul Ryan in the campaign, helped with his debate prep. She, she um, was regarded as a as a Paul Ryan protege. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and, and Paul early. Ryan certainly went out of his way to portray her that way. I mean, I think they right. went on uh, Face the Nation together, kind of as a yeah. team. And he was and lay, laying hands on her. You know? Right. And so way back then, she was very much that. She ran for Congress in 2014 in upstate New York. I actually gave her a contribution. And um, she ran in a primary against a Trumpier opponent, uh, a Trumpy, a po- proto-Trump, I guess you'd say, kind of populist. Who, we don't want this Harvard grad who's sort of hanging around Washington, you know, et cetera, stuff. She won. She won the election. But as then in 2016, she very barely supported Trump, wouldn't mention his name, criticized him several times for his comments on, I think, the Muslim ban, the Mexican judge, all that sort of stuff. But then not just, she didn't flip right away because in 2017, 2018, she voted against Trump more than I think all but five or six mm-hmm. Republican members of the House. She, uh, including defying the leadership on on the tax bill, which was kind of a major Trump priority. Uh, uh, she, um, in 2018, ran for re-election as not a particularly Trumpy candidate and tried to recruit sort of other candidates who wouldn't be uh, as Trumpy. And then to 2019, I think she saw the writing on the wall and she flipped and she saw impeachment, the first impeachment, the Ukraine impeachment is her chance to show off uh, for the Trump forces. And you know how it is. They, they for all their populist talk, they, they love the idea that a young, intelligent Harvard grad has come over to them. Bannon's made this explicit. It shows their strength. It shows their power. It's one thing just to have a bunch of, you know, representatives from deep red states sort of on board. They People expect that. And it's not a stupid political calculation on their part either. And so she rose like a, like a rocket in Trump ranks. But for me, the most amazing thing in the last two, three weeks has been she hasn't just sort of not been like Liz Cheney. She hasn't even, she hasn't been like Mitch McConnell. She hasn't even been like Kevin McCarthy, honestly. She has gone much further to show her Trump, uh, you know, loyalty and gone on Steve Bannon's show and peddled them. And she did this also on January 6th, voting to overturn the electors, uh, making ludicrous claims about how many false votes there were in Georgia, which I noticed John McCormick has a piece in National Review today. She still yeah. sort of half acknowledges that the number she threw out was ludicrous, but she still thinks they're terrible irregularities. And you know what states there were irregularities in, Charlie? This will surprise you. Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin and Arizona. The only yeah, one. Yeah. That the five states that the five states that, that Trump needed 
to win, win three of, I guess, to win the Electoral College. Those are the only states with irregularities. New York, you know, all the other states were fine, I guess. You know, the ones Trump won. Well, I mean, it's no, really you know, this 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 point about her lying about Georgia um, and being called on. She was called on it by uh, the, the Washington Post fact checkers and by John McCormick of, of National Review. And she, of course, she could back off and say, okay, you know, um, now with more information, I was wrong about that. Here's something else I want to talk about. Uh, But she's been particularly shameless in her spreading of the lie and her unwillingness to be corrected or to acknowledge that she put out information that was flatly, demonstrably false. That's a particular kind of shamelessness. And I guess that's the thing that, that really strikes me about her is that she could have made a transition without, you know, be completely um, reckless, you know, going on with Seb Gorka, talking with Steve Bannon, um, embracing the Arizona audit, lying about Georgia, and then when being caught lying about Georgia, continuing to double down. It's really extraordinary because you, you you mentioned she's from Harvard. She was actually a you know a star in you know in, at Harvard's you know Institute of Politics and and was uh, was named to their advisory board. There's really there's actually a really good piece by Declan Garvey about this, and this was really something that was her ambition to be part of that. And after January sixth, they threw her off because of her support for the uh, the the insurrection, and yet she apparently has no qualms at continuing to, to just torture her own reputation in, in, in search of power. So, I mean, ambition is one thing. This sort of reckless lack of concern for her own personal dignity is really quite extraordinary. I wonder where she could have learned that from, the, the shameless lying, the gaslighting, the actual <laughs> refusal to ever admit that anything you said was – and she could have said, look, it was a very uh, – you know, I, I heard this number. I saw it in, in the lawsuit. I didn't realize that it was a bad number. I, I'm sorry I put that out, but, 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 but. But no, you're right. She doesn't say that. And I wonder who, I wonder who she learned that kind of style of politics from. But let's be honest. Have, has anyone paid a price well, for it? You know, Trump almost wins re-election. I mean, not almost, but, but you know, it does better than one might have expected. Republicans pick up House seats. Kevin McCarthy, Scalise, Elise are happily there at the leadership of their conference. They kicked Liz Cheney out, who was daring to tell the truth. They look like they might win the House in 2022. Uh, they've got Fox News is all on board, as we saw last night with Brett, even Brett Baer. So what's what price have they paid? I mean, they got kicked yeah. off the advisory board of the of the of well, Harvard. Very, very, uh, no, no price politically for the Republicans, and they might feel that they were rewarded by this, which, which leads to this next question. Uh, Jeff Greenfield has a, a interesting piece in Politico. I don't know whether you've seen it, where he says, "Look, there's, there's no Republican civil war. There's just a purge. Uh, in order to have a civil war, you have to have two sides." And I think that it's pretty clear that that right now, um, the, the, this this party is overwhelmingly dominant, dominated by by Trumpists. So, you know, any talk of a Republican civil war is is wishful thinking. It's if there ever was one, it's over. And those guys have won. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Uh, you, maybe you don't have a purge unless you're a little scared of civil war, maybe. So let's, I could flip it that way. But no, I think that's basically correct. And there's plenty of data in Republican primaries and Texas 6, which had the special special election two weeks ago, that the, the anti-Trump lane is very small and the even post-Trump lane isn't huge in Republican primaries. 
Could it change? Could Liz Cheney be a more credible carrier of, of such a message as someone who gave Trump the benefit of the doubt, who worked with him for four years, supported him in Congress, supported him for re-election, thought, you know, okay, we can get by this kind of without confronting it. Not something you and I agreed with, but whatever, that was her judgment. Uh, and then really saw after November 3rd uh, how unbelievably damaging what he was doing was, uh, rallied against it. She helped organize that Secretary of Defense letter, on, I think it was January 3rd. Mm-hmm. Um, that really is what I think moved her. And again, for me, what's so astonishing is I think she was acting in, in pretty good faith throughout in the sense that she had a theory of how conservatism and the Republican Party could survive Trump, not by confronting him, but by kind of, you know, checking him at his worst and then getting beyond him. That theory turned out not to be true. Her colleagues, you know, supported Trump and wouldn't complain, wouldn't stand up against him in that incredibly tense period after the election and through then January 6th, talking about incredibly tense. And then they voted to overturn the electors, and then they justified January 6th a week late. Ten of them voted to impeach. She took the lesson from that. I give her credit for that. It's sort of as if you were, maybe you thought, it, I mean, I won't, this is kind of a bizarre analogy, but you thought appeasement was a decent idea in the 30s. It wasn't crazy that it might work, you know. But at some point you say, okay, that didn't work. Now we all have to mobilize against the threat. And there are a lot of people like that in the late 30s. Not everyone was Churchill. But uh, she did the right thing, is doing the right thing. And what is amazing is how few uh, of her colleagues are. I mean, that that for me is just, I continue to think if, if you had told me even on November 3rd, after all the incredible disappointments of the Republican Party over the last four years, that they would just go along with this. And now they're doing more than going along, aren't they? They're, they're, they're on board. You know, they're not just Elise Stefanik, they're you know, met several members of Congress. Nothing much happened on January 6th. They were Trump supporters. You know, the only person who was hurt was killed was a Trump supporter. It was kind of like just a visiting, they were just visiting the Capitol. I mean, you can't believe people are saying this, but, but they are. No, it, it 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 is this this ret whether you want to call it retconning or revisionist history. It's remarkable. Yeah. So so what should Liz Cheney do now? Uh, our colleague uh, Sarah Longwell wrote in the Bulwark that she should run for for president. And I guess the only scenario that where that would probably happen would be if uh, Donald Trump does try to get the nomination back. Which which by the way, I I think is more likely than not. I know there are a lot of people who are skeptical, but uh, if in fact Republicans sweep back into control of the House of Representatives, um, they're going to feel the wind at their back. Um, Parties always misread uh, victories in the midterm elections. They always do. Uh, Donald Trump will think all he has to do is put his name in. He'll get the nomination and he'll go back to the White House. Um, He's right about getting the nomination. But so so what, what should she do? What would a Trump Cheney Republican primary look like, for example? So I mean, it'll be it would be three years from now. Was the first thing to say. Yeah. So we don't know, and a lot will depend on the country and on the issues and, and and so forth. And so I don't think it's. I think she's right for now. I think she should take a little time and think things through. But I mean, she, she her honest view, I think, is that she is a Republican. She wants to remain a Republican. She wants to fight for the Republican Party. She wants to fight for her own reelection in Wyoming. She wants to support others like herself. And I think that's a very reasonable thing to try. I mean, she's not going to go become a Democrat tomorrow. There's no point, I don't think, becoming uh, independent, frankly, tomorrow, though she could decide. So, but, but, so I think yeah. she has a reasonable short-term kind of path. Now, at some point, someone will ask her in 2022, well, you're running for the Republican nomination here in Wyoming, assuming she does, uh, for real life. Uh, will you support Kevin McCarthy for speaker? I really don't know mm-hmm. what her answer that is. I think it's perfectly credible and reasonable to say no. And people remember Democrats said they wouldn't support Pelosi in, in 2018. And so she could say, no, I won't. I will be an, I'm running as an independent Republican. Um, now, does that 
that can slide a little bit over to, you know what, maybe I won't run in the primary. Maybe I'll run as a quote, independent Republican, uh, as an independent, as an independent, so to speak, or, you know, uh, that's happened in the past too. And in, 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 in both parties, I suppose, but not, not with people of her prominence usually. Um, but I think there are a ton of questions which range from who do you support in prime? Does she get involved in a bunch of primaries or does she not? Because she's doubtful how many places, you know, she might be a win in Wyoming, but can she help others win in other, in other congressional districts and other states? I mean, she's well, can't, can she win it? Can she win in Wyoming? We don't know if she can win in Wyoming. Now if she loses, she loses. And maybe at that point she says, okay, I've lost and, but I'm going to run for the Republican nomination. I think that. I don't know. I mean, she, I feel she's in sort of the similar position that I was in, Sarah Longwell, you, in mm-hmm. 2017, 18, 19, where we sort of hoped the Republican Party could be saved. We did a lot of work to try to save it. And we tried to get serious people to run for president uh, in the Republican primary against Trump as we wanted a Republican to support. And we, to their credit, Bill Weldon and Joe Walsh ran, but uh, didn't go much of anywhere. And we ended up supporting Biden. I mean, could that be Liz Cheney's path? I suppose nope. it's possible. She's uh, pretty conservative, though, and she's pretty Republican, more than people like us on the kind of outside. I mean, when you're an elected official, it's a little harder to switch. And uh, so I really think, I don't know. I think my advice to her, though, is we, we, we can't know. I mean, she needs to say what she believes, stick to principle, do the right thing in the short term, try to get more members of Congress, uh, good members of Congress in rather than uh, fewer that would matter. It matters to the country if there are 20 Liz Cheney Republicans in 2023 rather than two, you know. For one thing, it might mean that Kevin McCarthy wouldn't be speaker if they won the House and they would insist on a more neutral speaker or, you know, someone who's different, uh, you know, some uh, compromise between the two parties. So there are a lot of moving parts. Uh, I think she just needs to have that attitude that one should have in politics usually, which is these things are hard to predict. It's a very fluid situation. You stick to principle, but you look at the different, you know, you look at the situation in terms of your practical choices. And I don't know where she ends up by 2024. Well, the point you just made, though, that there's a big difference between whether there's 20 uh, anti-Trump Republicans in the caucus as opposed to two. But at this point, at this point, 20, 20 sounds like it would be wildly optimistic. Yeah. Yeah, are <laughs> going here. Okay, so let's talk about some of the other things that are going on. Um, if you if you listen to uh, Fox News, and I was listening to the press conference that the Republican leaders had after uh, the election of Elise Stefanik, you would think that this is the worst week of the Biden presidency. Everything is going to hell. We have war in the Middle East. We have gas lines. We have inflation exploding again. Uh, they're ignoring the crisis at the border, which which they created. I mean, this is an interesting, you know, you know, uh, take on what's going on because I think most Americans looking around going, "Hey, things are kind of feeling pretty good." Uh, polls so far suggesting approval of Biden. And then, of course, this kind of surprising announcement yesterday, the CDC guidance that the masks are off. And, you know, if you're fully vaccinated, you should get to go back uh, to your regular life. So talk to me about that. I I think that there this could have been rolled out, I, I think, uh, more smoothly. Uh, the CDC could have been a little bit more c- consistent. But um, I think most people seem to be regarding this as good news, although there are still questions. What do you think? I mean, it's certainly good news in general. I'd say it's a yeah, it's a reasonably sunny sky with some clouds, and you know, look, this is life, and this is 
politics, you get an economic recovery going, there are going to be some signs of inflation. You, uh, you know, there's a cyber attack on a major energy line. It turns out we haven't done a very good job over cyber, cyber security in the last five years, probably, or maybe 10 years, and uh, haven't done what we should have done. And, and you have a temporary, it looks like, gas shortage. And so there's, this isn't the first conflict between Israel and, uh, and, and Hamas, and uh, the first time, you know, so again, none of these things, I think, is is as nearly as decisive uh, as the Republicans portray it. I think on the CDC thing, I do think one reason they did this, I was talking with someone who's not in the CDC, but is a public health person. I think they did uh, buy the argument that you've been making actually for a while and others that, you know, you got to remind people, if you want everyone to get vaccinated, you got to remind them that it's going to be a much better, uh, much better lives after they get vaccinated. And one way to do that, I mean, you could try to continue to have the mask mandate and somehow you know, only lift it for those who are vaccinated, but unless you're going to literally have kind of a, I don't know, there's just no practical way to know, right? I mean, everyone who walks into a store and stuff, and they do, I think they do think as a matter of public health, it's, if you are vaccinated, you are pretty safe. So I think lifting it is a, more of an incentive for people to kind of, and there'll be more social pressure, I think, now to get vaccinated, because you don't have the mask thing as kind of a way of saying, well, that keeps you safe anyway. So I hope it does actually maybe have a little give a little shot in the arm, so to speak, to the vaccination program. I do think it'll lead to a big sense of relief and opening up, which is already you already see it. We argued about this on the live stream last night. Argued, but debated a little bit on the live stream last night. I, how much of a sort of sense of relief and and even you know jubilation there'll be over the next few months. Tim Miller thinks it could really help Biden, which could. I remind me of the first Gulf War in the George H.W. Bush administration, where he did a great job and handled it well, and everyone heaved a big sigh of relief and promptly forgot about it two months later and decided they were sick of Bush and went to elect Bill Clinton. So I don't know how much credit Biden has done. A, I mean, I don't I'll just finish that. I don't know how much credit Biden gets from this, but when we discussed all this in January, Everyone agreed, not just us and the whole country, every political observer. The task of the Biden administration, the first kind of red light, green light test for them is the vaccine. Will they roll it out well? Will they get people vaccinated? Will they be able to get the country moving back to normal by the summer, by Memorial Day, and really back to normal by Labor Day? I think that was kind of the conventional markers and tell you know reasonable markers and it looks to me like they're succeeding on that and i do think we should halt and say you know maybe it would have happened anyway maybe just you know vaccines are great and the country is the country and it didn't the leadership didn't matter but i don't know i don't quite buy that and so yeah. uh and if you look around the world incidentally it's there's a reason not to quite buy that so i, I give the administration credit they've done a couple things unless you say a little clunkily and so forth but it is government after all well, you know, your your analogy going back to the, you know, the first Bush administration, you know, winning the Iraq war, you know, and getting 91% approval rating and then being defeated in the next election uh, is, is one of those cautionary uh, stories that reminds you that sometimes being successful too early can be bad, that people mm -hmm. just sort of pocket the win and then they move on. But I also think, and I'm, I'm kind of a hardliner on this, um, that, that if you're going to remove the masks, th this is there's two things that need to be done. Number one, we keep bribing people. We keep, I'm, I'm in favor of all this stuff. I mean, if you want to give beers and shots, if you want to give, give out French fries, if you want to have lotteries, I, I don't care, whatever it is to take, uh, whatever it takes to get people to do it. But that's the, that's, that's the carrot. We also need the stick, which is that this is a, the time for 
businesses and others to say, we're going to require proof of vaccination. If you're going to come back to the office, you have to have proof of vaccination. Colleges and schools are doing this. This is not that that radical, really, because I think the more you know, venues, sports teams, airlines require these vaccine, this proof of vaccine, the faster we're going to get our lives back. I mean, they not only reassure people that it's safe to come back, but it creates this powerful incentive because you go, you wave it and say, this is the ticket, you know, to get your hot summer. I mean, this is it. And and they're not this crazy notion that somehow the passports would be an assault on freedom. And I, I wrote this in my newsletter. I mean, until about five minutes ago, everybody understood that the right to swing your fist stops at another person's nose, right? You know, that your freedom stops when you are endangering the health of other people. So I, I understand that, you know, not getting the, the vaccine is a choice, but but choices have consequences. And I think the rest of us are free to shun people who make stupid and dangerous choices that put other people at risk. And that, by the way, has been acknowledged by the U.S. Supreme Court that there's, you know, that that in public health emergencies, the government has the right to do a variety of things. But most of these vaccine passports requirements would would not be imposed by government. They'd be imposed by private indis- by private entities that are exercising their own constitutional right to make choices. So I do think that we need to continue this. And, you know, particularly the businesses that have accepted trillions of dollars of government money. The only thing that's really being asked in return is, hey, you know, can you encourage people to get vaccinated? And I think they ought to do it. And and I and I, I do not see um, valid libertarian objections to that. I mean, I, I don't either, at least in principle. I mean, if you want a slightly softer version of your proposal, you could require people either be vaccinated or if for some reason they, they have a problem with that. And there are a few people who have medical issues and so forth. Mm-hmm. They have to show, they have to take a, a test, you know, a COVID test, um, and uh, and that they'll have to pay for that test. And, you know, people can make it available, obviously, but, you know, you'd have to pay whatever the cost is of an instant reliable test, which could be a couple hundred dollars, at least it has been for the last year when people have had to do that. And, you know, so you show up at the airport and either you show your little vaccine card and then you just sail through or you, you wait in line and take it, you know, pay get your credit card out and take a test and get the results 15, you have to get there 15 minutes yeah. earlier because the test takes 15 minutes. So make it a burden not to have the the vaccine, but give them that alternative. But I agree requiring one or the other makes sense. Again, I, if you're vaccinated, you're not going to probably get it from someone who's not unvaccinated. So it, it's not maybe strictly necessary, but I do think also businesses should not, you know, businesses, if they simply don't ask, don't tell what if there are five unvaccinated people in the room? I mean, do you want to be responsible for having a conference somewhere and it turns out five people get sick because they chose not to be vaccinated, even if the vaccinated people are fine? So I think it's reasonable. Uh, I'm very much, I'm a hard line around this too. Well, and and again, this is a reminder that if you want to travel abroad, you want to go anywhere, you're going to have to have proof of various forms of vaccination. Uh, anyone who is a parent knows all of the required vaccinations that kids have to have to attend school. Um, I actually published the list of all of the vaccines that you have to uh, uh, have certificates for in the state of Florida. You see, you have, you know, Ron DeSantis saying how terrible this is, you know, what an infringement on freedom. Um, Bullshit. I mean, if you go to school, public school in Florida, you have to come up with 
all kinds of proofs of, of vaccination. So, I mean, you need certificates of immunization, um, you know, to go to schools, childcare facilities, family daycare homes, all of that. So this is not that radical. We're very, very close. The carrot and the stick approach, I think, work. Okay, so we, we talked briefly about what's going on in, in the Middle East. And um, I have to tell you, I, I'm getting I, so many people have, you know, watching this and it, it appears to be escalating. It's not clear what this, what set this off and what role, if any, either the Trump administration or the Biden administration played. Can you give me some perspective on this? I mean, it's a little hard to disentangle because yeah. it's the Middle East and it's complicated and so forth. But I, there's a, there was a good uh, podcast with Elliot Abrams uh, yesterday that I think is online on, on Tikva, the Tikva Center's website or Mosaic, uh, T-I-K-V-A-H. I think you can look mm-hmm. up uh, Elliot Abrams. And, he's, and Elliot served, obviously, on very very senior position at the National Security Council on the Middle East under George W. Bush, then served in the Trump administration, pretty uh, on Venezuela and Iran. So he's not uh, an anti-Trump Republican. He's not really a pro-Trump Republican, but he, he, he made his peace with Trump. And he, he said a few interesting things. One, it's not mostly about Trump or Biden or anything like that. It's not mostly about America. It's about internal Palestinian politics. There was supposed to be an election and then it got postponed or canceled. And Hamas wanted to show strength. There's fighting within Hamas to show strength. It's about there's also issues in Israel itself and Jerusalem uh, having to do with uh, in East Jerusalem, having to do with property disputes, which are quite complicated legal disputes, uh, which have erupted in violence there. Hamas took advantage of that. It, it has nothing to do, obviously, with shooting rockets to Tel Aviv and, and the south of Israel and stuff, but but Hamas was wanted to launch that, maybe to show their strength compared to the Palestinian Authority, the more, you know, the, which controls the West Bank. Um, one point Ellie made that I hadn't really thought of was, there's not much rioting on the West Bank, you know? It's funny, the, the, they don't like Hamas, and they don't want to be kind of part of this. Now, the one... But I think most of it, it, Hamas's weaponry has been upgraded. That's thanks to Iran. Israel's defensive weaponry is upgraded too, though. So thanks to us in part and thanks to themselves. Uh, I, I, it may subside, I, I think. The one most worrisome thing, uh, if you're a friend of Israel, is the communal riots, which have been yes. triggered within Israel, with Israelis fighting Israelis, Israeli Arabs fighting Israeli Jews. I mean, it's a tiny percentage of the population, and there's an amazing amount of friendly or at least tolerant coexistence in Israel. It's one of the things people don't understand. There's something like, I think, one and a half, maybe more than that million Israeli Arabs who, you know, I mean, uh, who have rights, full rights, really. And, um, you know, they have some grievances, some of which are legit, some of which are maybe stoked up, but uh, they do live together in peace and, you know, in Israel. Unfortunately, this has provoked, you know, uh, these these ethnic riots. Now, I think these are mostly a few troublemakers, uh, extremists uh, on both the Arab side and the Jewish side, and maybe. But and, and to to its credit, the Israeli government has strongly, strongly condemned uh, the rioters and the vigilantes on both sides, but including the Jews. So there's no tolerance. I would say for the Jews, we're not in the Donald Trump situation of my rioters are good and your rioters are bad. They've been pretty good on that, even though it's you know quite a right wing Israeli government. But you put it all together, it's a combustible mix, and no one knows quite what's going to happen. They've been pretty good in the past at keeping these things kind of within limits. You know what I mean? They haven't expanded into huge wars in the last decade or so, but uh, you never know. And then there's Hezbollah on the northern border. So. Uh, anyway, I hope the the, the the rockets subside. I hope 
uh, Israel can then subside in terms of its military actions. And the Gaza situation is just a bad situation. I mean, it's a product of decades of uh, one of the what craziest things is all these refugee camps. These are refugees who were refugees in 1948, and the Arab world has not let them, in effect, amazing. Yeah. resettle and re you know, acclimate to wherever they are. Jews came from all these Arab countries, of course, and just integrated in Israel and Jews or elsewhere in the world. And of course, we have immigrants here and they settle in and they don't stay in refugee camps for 10 or 20 years, right? But um, they have kept them there and Gaza is the center of that. And, the, and, and there's a huge industry and a huge political incentive to to foster grievances and, and extremism. So that's unfortunately not, not going away. But I, I guess I, anyway, I don't know what's yeah. going to happen. I think that's, but it's not due to us. It's not due to Biden. It's not due to Trump either. Right. Uh, and, and you know, it. It. I think Biden, for the, I would say one political thing, and Elliot made this point, which surprised me a little because he's been, you know, he was for Trump. He wasn't for Biden. Um, he said the Biden administration has been better than he expected as a pro-Israel Republican on Israel in the sense that there's not much evidence that they're pressuring Israel not to okay, that, forcefully. Uh, and, and the public statements have been quite good, actually. Okay, so that's what I was going to ask you about next, because I'm seeing that the squad and much of the really you know progressive wing of the Democratic Party seems to be pushing, uh, putting pressure on Biden not to be so pro-Israel. In fact, you're seeing you know a lot of very pro-Palestinian um, you know commentary out there, and again, uh, this uh, the, the the group of the, the group of um, the, the the four um, squad members. Uh, I don't know any way else to describe them who have been relatively quiet lately are very very outspoken on all of this. And you kind of wonder, does that create a political, uh, an internal democratic problem for Joe Biden? I don't know what's a problem. I mean, there's a, an anti-Israel wing, let's be honest, of the uh, the Democratic Party, and more importantly, of the left, uh, which is certainly mobilized on, on this occasion, as one could expect. For me, the big story is that the Biden administration isn't listening to them. They're not affecting policy of the Biden administration. They're not affecting the majority of responses by House Democrats and Senate Democrats. And so for all the people who said, oh, my God, you're supporting Biden, you're just betraying Israel, I feel, frankly, somewhat vindicated that they have a problem on their left. It's not like the Republicans don't have some problems also on anti-Israel mm-hmm. characters floating around in their ranks. Um, but it's more in the Democratic Party. I, I want to be honest about that. But to its credit, they're attacking the Biden administration. I, uh, you probably see this too online, they on are. Twitter and stuff. They're more bitter about Biden than anyone else. And how could they be, you know, this, how could they be hewing to this traditional uh, pretty pro-Israel, well, you know, pro-Israel line that American administrations have taken, uh, both, you know, Clinton and Bush and so forth. So I, I think it's interesting that so far, at least for all the people who screamed, if I can say this personally, who screamed to me as a Jew that how could I support Biden? You know, it's a betrayal of Israel. Yeah. Oh yeah. If Biden were, were, were sounding like, uh, Ilhan Omar right now, I would be very, very unhappy. And I would really rethink, I guess, what I had uh, done in 2020. But I don't feel the need to do that because as Elliot Abrams said, they've been pretty good so far. You know, I, I, I am, I'm a supporter of Israel, but I don't give them a, a blank check. And I'm no. certainly don't believe that it's all good and all evil, you know, on, on one side or the other side. However, the asymmetry of the rocket fire, you mentioned the rockets, uh, is really striking. I'm looking at this picture, this really dramatic picture of these rockets coming in from Hamas um, headed toward the Iron Dome. 
And what you have is uh, rockets being fired into Israel indiscriminately aimed at civilian areas. They don't care whether they're killing civilians. On the other hand, you have uh, the the Israelis who have you know invested a great deal of money in strictly defensive measures. And yes, that there have been civilian deaths, but they appear to be collateral damage as opposed to the intentional strategy of the of the uh, forces attacking Israel. So I do sense this asymmetry that that sometimes gets lost in some of the really highly ideological critiques of what's going on. Look, I think that as someone who's pro-Israel, I've you know thought that for for decades, and I also very much agree though that it's important not to give Israel a blank check, uh, including on the, some of the internal issues of how Arab, uh, how Israeli Arabs have been treated. I mean, the irony is that what are, if you talk to Israeli Arabs, one thing they complain about is there's more crime in their communities than in Jewish areas of Israel. That's partly because the, there are fewer police there. That's partly because there's a sense that you know there's some sensitivities about uh, excessive police presence, and it may just be also discrimination. Frankly, you know that the, the the Israeli Arabs vote usually for Arab members of the Knesset who aren't part of the government. Uh, others have representation of the government, so guess what? The people who have representation of the government get you know get more police attention, more civil, more social services, um, more construction, and all kinds of things. And I think Netanyahu actually, for someone who's very right wing and has been willing to demagogue the Arab issue somewhat, including Israeli Arabs, unfortunately, has actually in practice, my impression is, done a little more to actually try to help um, the Arab communities within within Israel and ensure that they have access to education, of course, and to the universities, which they certainly do, and to professions and, and so forth. So look, that, that absolutely no blank check for Israel, but on the other hand, uh, it is asymmetric in terms of the responsibility. Hamas is a terrorist group that wants to destroy Israel. Israel would love it if they could just never think about Gaza again. They're not, they have no ambition. They got out in 2005 or whatever it was. They, they don't want to destroy anything. They just want to be left alone to live in a free and, uh, and, and liberal uh, democracy. Bill Crystal, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it very much. My pleasure and have a good weekend, Charlie. Everybody had a, a good weekend. A maskless weekend. I, I intend to make it as maskless as possible, but then again, my dogs don't require me to wear masks when I take them for walks. So th- thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Uh, we will be back on Monday, and we'll do this all over again.